Good morning, guys. How are you doing? Everybody okay? So, um, as you may um, pick up from my accent that I'm not from around these parts, um, I'm from east of Tennessee. And um, uh, from here, it's about 7,000 miles uh, east of Tennessee. But uh, I'm glad to be with you. I'm uh, from a place called Wales. Uh, which is part of the, uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, you may have heard of the Prince of Wales, uh, but I'm here to tell you he's a fake. Uh, he's just an English pretender. Uh, he's not the original uh, Prince of Wales. They killed him back in the 1240s. Um, but uh, so my background is I grew up uh, the son and grandson of, uh, of pastors. And, uh, and then um, for, for some very strange twisted reason, God decided that I could and should become a pastor as well. Um, but in that between time of realizing and then becoming, I did everything I could to try and not be a pastor and prove myself completely unworthy. But you'll see within Scripture that God usually chooses those that are completely unworthy to serve Him. And so I've ended up as a pastor. Uh, I've been in the United States for, crikey, close to 20 years now. And uh, crikey, you never heard that word before? <laughs> wow. Anyway, so you'll hear a few other things too. Um, but uh, so I've been in the in the United States almost 20 years. I've been in full-time ministry uh, for uh, for a little bit more than that, and uh, and it's a privilege. Wow, I'll keep my head up or keep it down, whichever you want me to do. Uh, but it's been a privilege of mine to serve the Lord. Um, I, I'll tell you, it it hasn't always been wonderful. Uh, there are definitely hard times within uh, ministry and hard times within um, realizing that you have to set priorities with your family and set priorities with the work that you do and, uh, and live for the Lord first and foremost. And, uh, and there have definitely been hard times, but there's been joyous and glorious times. So um, one of the things I probably should share with you, um, just so we're on a, on a right and proper footing, um, I'm a former rugby player. And uh, so if you don't like this today, we can talk about it later outside if you like. Um, <laughs> but I'll often, I'll often start talks by telling people, hey, friends, I need to let you know I'm a former hooker. And now I'm a preacher. And you're like, oh, my gosh, who is this guy and what has he done in his past? Hooker is a position in rugby. Um, and, and right in the middle of the scrummage where you hook the ball back. Yeah, so there's the shock factor. At least the first one. The, this morning, we're going to look just a uh, kind of an overview, really, um, of Nehemiah. I understand that you have been working through some themes around Reformation. Is that correct? Okay, so you've looked at Calvin and Luther, touched on any Zwingli yet, and his charging into battle, and didn't work so good for him charging into battle that day. Have you ever heard of Zwingli? You've done that, some of that? So as I look at the Reformation, and, and, I, and I realize that there's ways of approaching what these fellas did, but, but I, I learned a long time ago, and it always was a useful illustration for me, uh, thinking particularly about Calvin and Luther and how they approached the things that they believed and they were convicted of for the Scripture and for the faith and for the sake of the ongoing proclamation of the Gospel. So I was looking at it. Everybody's uh, grown up in a house where in the kitchen there is a particular type of drawer. Have you ever seen that drawer? You know the drawer where there's stuff in it. You don't know what that stuff is for. There's some things that you recognize and there's things that your mother said, no, leave that in there. It might be useful one day. 
and there's stuff that, that just seems, and it's, it's the drawer that's usually at the corner, and when you have guests coming looking for cutlery, that's silverware for you all, um, when people come looking, they open that drawer, and your mother goes, oh, oh, because there's that shock factor. Well, when it comes to the Reformation, I, I, I look at what Luther does, and I look at what Calvin does, and their approach to to the Reformation and the things that needed to be reset or re-understood or re-emphasized from Scripture was that, that Luther comes to this junk drawer that he looked at in terms of the church and the traditions that had been built up. And he simply opened the door and after he had <gasps> taken that deep breath of shock and horror, realizing that which he had grown up in, he opens this drawer and he begins to dig through the drawer. And his approach to the Reformation was he would start pulling things out that he felt were no longer useful. He felt that these things were not appropriate anymore to be in that drawer. The drawer being the church, if you're a little slow this morning. Um, So he pulled the drawer and he started pulling these things out. And what he chose to do was to leave things in there that he felt were the right and proper things. So, you know, of course, he's looking at some of the traditions. He's like, you know, paying for forgiveness. And no, let's pull that out. But he left in certain items and certain aspects. He had this other fellow, this French guy hanging out um, in, uh, in another country. And he comes along to the same drawer. And he looks at the drawer. He opens it. And he goes, <gasps> but in a French accent. <laughs> he opens the drawer and, and he says, ooh. Socle bleu. And he opens this drawer and he takes the drawer and he dumps the drawer out all over the floor. And he puts the drawer back in and he leaves it empty. Then he goes to this junk that's all over the floor and he looks at all of these things and he begins to see that which he sees as right and proper. And he picks those things up and he places those items back in the drawer. So when you look at Reformation and you study that, that aspect of the church's history, you begin to realize that there are a couple of different things and approaches that these different people and uh, Luther and, and Calvin uh, are but just a couple mixed into that. And then you get Henry VIII that comes along and says, ooh, jolly, I get an excuse to break away from this marriage from this really ugly Spanish lady that I don't like anymore. So there are people that picked up on it. There was an approach to a need to be reformed as a cupbearer to the king of Artaxerxes was hearing the horror stories of what was taking place in the very center of his faith journey. The place was called Jerusalem. And Nehemiah, this character, comes along and, he, and he's the cupbearer to the king. He's, he's the fellow that has a very close connection to this guy, King Oxyxerxes. And he, he comes along and he hears from his brothers the sad news of what had been taking place in Jerusalem. And his heart breaks over what had happened. Yes, the people of, uh, of, his, of his faith had been picked up. Uh, the, the one tribe had been, uh, one kingdom had been scattered. Uh, and the other uh, kingdom had been picked up and lifted and taken off into uh, a Babylonian exile. And that's where he finds himself. But there was still that which was uh, remaining. The remnant was still in Jerusalem. And the news that he was getting, as Nehemiah chapter 1 tells us, his brothers come and his heart breaks. So I think of those characters like Luther and Zwingli and, and the others and Knox and those, and they, and they come to that which they see and their heart 
breaks because they realize there's a disconnect from what the people are, uh, are knowing and what they could know. And so Nehemiah comes along and he, his heart breaks for, and he goes to the king and he says, King, I want to go and do something about this. And the king, surprisingly, because God, I think, opens his heart and says, Okay, go and I'll send with you whatever he wants. So his approach to reforming faith in Jerusalem was a little different from the draw scenario for Luther and, and the other reformers because it wasn't just that there was a draw that was full of junk. The problem there was the drawer was broken. And it wasn't just the drawer was broken, the cabinet had been destroyed. And it wasn't just the cabinet was destroyed, the whole house had been torn down and had been left for ruins. So Nehemiah turns up, taking with him a faithful group of people. And they turn up at Jerusalem. And the first couple of nights he just circles around the walls. And he begins to assess what, what is happening. You've got to imagine these reformers in, that, in, the, uh, in the Reformation, they had been thinking about these things for a while. I think God's conviction in their hearts had been stirring. And, and you must understand this is a powerful organization, the church, that they were part of. And to stand against them would literally have meant their lives. Nehemiah comes and he realizes that there are people all around Jerusalem that are just so excited about the fact that it's destroyed. And, and, for, and for Nehemiah to, to circle and to realize that the bricks need to be placed back in place and the gates need to be rehung, the towers need to be rebuilt so that there is a security for the people. And that was the very last thing that those who had control over that region wanted. Again, the same thing. Uh, the, the church of the day of the Reformation was not open to the things that the Reformers were talking about. They did everything they could to stand in their way. They, they eventually were able to bring some sense of destruction to some of them. But the truth, the truth will always win out. So Nehemiah, as we read in in uh, chapters 2 and 3 of his, of his book, starts the work. First, he's assessing, realizing what needs to happen. So he brings people to, together to try and work this uh, so that this reform, this change, this transformation of the center of uh, worship for the Jewish people it can be rebuilt. So he gathers this group of people and they, and they start the work. So there are several gates that you'll read about. There's the water gate where uh, eventually the people, uh, the, the true revival, the true reform comes into place as Ezra reads the law and the people, their hearts are broken as they gather there below the water gate. And it says in the scripture, they come as one man. Though women and children and men come together, they, they come as one. And their hearts break. So you have things like the water gate. You have the valley gate. And you have several other gates. And then there's the dung gate. Yeah, who are the lucky ones that got to build that one? So these characters come together and they start working alongside Nehemiah. And they all had a task. When I look at the variety of people within the Reformation, I realize there were particular points that each had an emphasis within. And so when we look at this junk drawer that's in the kitchen and we think about Luther particularly, his sense of calling was maintaining much of what was there. 
when you look at Lutherism, in Luther's day, it looked very similar to and almost the same as papism, Roman Catholicism of the day, except the removal of the Pope and some of the, 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 the power that the church held was distributed into the hands of others and the emphasis on the Word of God rather than the teaching simply of the church tradition. And Calvin said, well, it's all got to go. And he stood firmly against those things. So Nehemiah comes along and he starts to, to look at what's important. But the one reality of the Reformation is the same as the reality for Nehemiah in his time when he's looking to bring that hope back was that one purpose, to bring hope back to the center of that which was important for the people of God. All of the reformers, they wanted hope to be reestablished. You can imagine during this period, and, and we talk about that, that medieval period leading up into the, uh, to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, etc., we talk about it as being dark. And we talk about it as being very um, um, hopeless. Of course, plague was, uh, was sweeping back and forth across, across Europe at the time, and disease and famine and struggle and difficulty. There was little hope. The very thing that should be bringing hope to the church was causing even more despair for people. So Nehemiah looks at the things that needed, and he wanted to reestablish hope for a people, the remnant, that were in despair. So he begins the work, and they begin to rebuild uh, these, these walls. And the, uh, the different peoples are gathered, the different groups do their role. Uh, they undertake the building. They, they think about these repairs. They, they connect. And, of course, then here comes the opposition. Uh, and they start to say, oh, no, we don't want Jerusalem to be secure again. Just like the opposition that came against those reformers. Much of it was about how much they made from people. You know, the source of income that they had by, by telling people, oh, you've, um, you've looked at a woman wrongly? Well, that's going to cost you quite a lot of money in order for us to absolve you. And various other things. So it comes the opposition. And Nehemiah in, in, in chapter 4 begins to, uh, to stand against those uh, that were in opposition, realizing that truth again was going to win out. Nehemiah feels that sense of God's call, reminded of the heartbreak that he felt when he first heard the news. And then in chapter 6, right at the end of that chapter, at verse 15, we read, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, in 52 days, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. 52 days to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's wall was about eight, um, uh, about eight miles, oh, three miles around, and it was about eight foot thick and about uh, uh, 40 foot high. We're talking about a pretty big construction project. Can you imagine going to a builder and saying, hey, I want this huge monstrosity of a building done, and you have 52 days. They're like, I can't build a 1,700 square foot house in 52 weeks. 
uh, let alone a, a big, huge undertaking. But because of the people gathering together, because they were speaking for truth, because they were seeing the work of what God had been doing and what was going on, the purpose then was seen and understood clearly. And the opposition, they were terrified. They were terrified. So you can imagine the church at the time, those certain ones that did not want their power to be taken away, standing in opposition. But then you see the shift that took place very clearly uh, in, in that period of time because all of a sudden the realization was that God was at work in this. But the true reform, the true change came for the people when the law was read. The, the pieces, the bits, and, bits and, uh, and pieces within the drawer in that context for, for the, the reformers, when, when they started to put those things back in, the, uh, the church was to look very differently. You know, the themes of the, of the Reformation, those uh, solas. Has, has, has somebody taught on the five solas yet? Okay. So you can tell me what those five solas are? Extra points. Ryan, President Ryan will take you to lunch if you have them all right. Okay, give me one. Sola fide. What is that? Faith alone. Solo Christus, which is Christ alone. One of you. Who's on the scripture thing? Okay, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. Gloria Deo, so the, to the glory of God alone. Yes, yeah, so those themes were, were important. So when you, th- you think about what was going on with, uh, with those reformers, they, they, they see this transformation changing. And, and, and what you didn't see in, that, in, that, um, in those themes were this was about human beings. It was just about God. And so in Nehemiah's... Um, uh, description of what was happening when, when, when he's coming as the governor now of this province. Uh, Ezra comes along and, and that which was most important, that which was most important was again declared. They built a special platform in chapter 8, it tells us. And there, there in that, uh, that particular period, after the wall was complete, once that security was established and the people were safe within, then the law was proclaimed. And if you read this passage, you begin to see how, how the book was opened. Verse 5 tells us, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, their, their great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen and Amen. And then he set about for the whole entirety of the law to be read. The people, the people could understand it because it was being proclaimed in a way that made sense. So you start to think about all the various layers, the junk that was within this drawer prior to the Reformation. And you begin to see and recognize that so much of it just didn't make sense to anybody. And the simple excuse was tradition. Why do you have tradition? Why do you tradition? And so when the, when the junk was moved out of the way, the people could understand. So, so if you think about that for the poor person who doesn't have the money to be able to pay for their absolution of their sins, and yet, yet when the Reformation takes place now, all of a sudden it's just simply by 
Grace alone. I, I don't have to do anything. I can't do anything. Because it's grace and that alone. And so the, the tradition was, oh yeah, grace is present, but you have to do all of these other things. Then it's not grace. As soon as you add anything to grace, it's no longer grace. If you've ever encountered um, uh, Mormon missionaries, for example, they'll tell you that they believe in the grace of, of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it sounds very much like we as believers in, in Christ Jesus from an evangelical perspective. They talk about grace. But then they'll start quoting you. It's grace plus what you're able to perfect in yourself. As soon as you take anything and add it to grace, it is no longer grace. And so for, for the, the reformers, they began to give people hope again because they saw the simplicity of what was really there. And so for the people of, of, of Jerusalem, you can imagine the hopeless state in which they lived where there was, there was no protection, there was no security. All of the enemies were trying to tell them what they were to do. The, uh, the, the religious uh, activities around them had began to influence who they were. And so now comes back again their simple tradition of here's God's law, here's God's word for you. What are you doing about it? And, and from the tradition I come from, within that sense of the Reformed tradition, we hold to two sets or two senses of, uh, of understanding Scripture, from the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And, it, and, in, and in Genesis chapter 3, you see this change that takes place. As, as, as God promises Eve, from your offspring will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's that covenant of grace. That's grace alive, working. And so as we read through the Scripture, we're seeing these moments where God's grace is being moved towards. We're seeing this implication, this, this image of the grace being extended to the people. And they simply read the law. And the word of the law changed people's hearts. When you think about the reformers, you think about what they were doing, that, that, that it was by grace alone, by faith alone, uh, by, by uh, understanding Scripture in, in, that, in its sense of, uh, of its wholeness and the revelation of what it does in revealing Jesus and His mercy and His love for us as human beings. And then all of this is to the glory of God and no one else, not to any pastor or priest or pope or, or any formation in terms of structure. It's just simply about God and what God has done. So when the war was complete, the law was read, and the people praised God. And they began realizing what God had done in them, and they began to confess. And they came again in repentance. They were changed and transformed. They were reformed into God's people. Their confession led them to a celebration. Their confession led them to a place where they're able to celebrate, not to grieve, as, uh, as verse 10 of chapter 8 says. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you place hope, into people's steads, into their lives, when you show them that there can be something else. It should bring joy. So I know I'm
to be closing here pretty soon. And, and I want to just leave some practical thoughts with you in terms of how you live out a life that shows the transformation of Christ. So Ezra and Nehemiah and the others, they read the law. And the law, the word of God, was that which was transforming. So you need to be attentive to the word of God. So, and we can make all kinds of excuses um, as to time or um, you know, opportunity, but you need to be in God's Word. It's no accident that the reformers began to realize and recognize there were things that were wrong in the church that they set about, therefore, then to change. Why? Because they began to read God's Word earnestly, earnestly. So be aware of God's Word. Spend time in the Word of God. And, and don't just read it in terms of, well, I'm just going to start at the beginning and, and work through. Study God's Word. Knowing it, picking out those things that you're realizing that, that brings change in your own life and can bring change in the life of others. Because that's what the Reformation, really, bottom line, was about. Bringing about a change that was life-giving. So if you want your life to be changed, to be reformed in Christ, you need to go to His Word. The second thing you need to think about is, in in practical terms, what you do with that Word. I've said this many times in different groups and said it to my own congregation. And uh, we have a lot of Bible studies that are involved. So I've just told you, spend time in God's Word. But I'm about to tell you that we can Bible study our way out of relevance. Because it's really nice to sit hidden away reading God's Word. And, and, and we become you know, more and more aware of what God has done for me. And I get so excited about what He's done. And I keep reading. And, and I'm confessing. And He's changing me. He's maturing me. He's giving me gifts and abilities. And I'm sitting there in my room. And oh, I feel so good about myself. And oh, look what it says. And I keep going. And I keep feeding. And I, you know, yes, look at me. I ate all the pies. I did. I ate too many pies. And with God's Word, we can keep feeding and keep feeding and keep feeding. We become gluttons of God's Word, just like I can eat too many pies. So what do you do with that? You study God's Word for a reason, that it it, it would change you, but that then you are able to see change in others because you're sharing what you know. So I look at me. I, I used to play rugby, and so I've always not been tiny. You know, I, I used to feel sorry for those wimpy kids because, you know, all I had to do was, you know, press a little harder and roll a little bigger, and I would hear the snap. Um, but I realized that, that um, I don't play rugby anymore. <laughs> so my caloric intake probably should be adjusted. But I have this 19-year-old mentality of, yeah, I'm still playing rugby, and yeah, I've got to clear my plate. It doesn't work so well for me, actually. But think about when you're reading God's Word, you've got to be thinking about it for yourself, but also how this can change the lives of those around you. So, so don't cloister yourself away, is simply what I'm saying. Don't think that the only way for you to be a good Christian is for you just to hide away from everything else in the world. 
And you guys are in a slightly different scenario, and, it's, and I'm not being negative. You're at a Christian uh, college. You know, you've, you've come to, to be part of an environment where you can be supported and encouraged both in your academic, which is really important, but also in your faith uh, journey together. Some of you are, uh, are seeking to train to do ministry outside. Some of you are wondering while you're going through this academic exercise what you're going to do next. And you're in this environment where you've got sisters and brothers in Christ that are loving on you and supporting you and spurring you on. But, but what they shouldn't be doing is saying, oh, now we all have to stay cloistered away, live kind of like in an abbey or in a, coven, in a convent, and we're just hidden away from the world. That's the best way. No, the reformers were very clear. And Nehemiah was very clear. They built the security of the wall, the fellowship. And once that was secure, then they were able to be this light again, this light again in that region. So out of what Nehemiah had built in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, in the, in the renewing of their covenant with God, the people again were to be the voice of God in that area. You and I were called to know God's Word and to share God's Word, to be the voice of transformation in this region and beyond. So the final thing then is know that you don't do this by yourself or in your own strength. The joy of the Lord was their strength. That's what maintained them. That's what encouraged them. I think that's how they were able to get this really hard work done so quickly. They weren't alone. It wasn't one group doing one little brick at a time, and then they'd go on to the next tower or onto the next gate. They were working together. So, so you're all in different places. You may attend different churches. You may be involved in different types of ministries, but you've all got a valid thing that you've been called to do. Luther did one thing. Calvin did another. Zwingli, and you can keep going on about all these different, and they all had a particular role to play. You have a unique purpose in seeing transformation come where you are. God's called you and equipped you, so you don't do it on your own. You're doing it in concert with others. It's like a rugby team. If you've ever watched rugby, you'll realize that um, you only have uh, a couple of opportunities uh, to get your hands on the ball. Because of the way the game is played, I always played in what they call the front row of the scrummage. So you've got, you know, 16 um, very sweaty, ugly, big guys uh, crushing in on each other. And, um, and then you've got what they call the scrum half, and then the fly half, or the outside half, and then you have your centers, two of those, and then you have your fullback, who's behind them, in defense, and then you have what I always used to call the glory boys, the wingers, because these were the ones that once the guys in the pack, in the front row, and in the scrummage, when they had done all the hard work of securing the ball, these glory boys, all they simply had to do was run across the line. <laughs> But honestly, they realized that without me in what I was doing, they couldn't do what they did. And I realized without them, we wouldn't achieve and score the way we did. We all had a role. We all had a purpose. And for me to say as the hooker, I'm so much better than you, the winger just wouldn't work. So think about it in terms of your unity with one another and the uniqueness that you have and the call that God lays upon your life. But think about it in terms of the concept of the body that you're part of.
And it isn't just about one particular local fellowship congregation. It's about the whole church, the bride of Christ. And we all have a purpose. We all have a calling. We all have something that God has asked each of us to do. And it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength. So if you're looking somewhere else for that joy, well, you'll find yourself weak. But the joy of the Lord can be your strength. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you call us to be engaged in seeing transformation in our own lives by the power of your Spirit in renewing our minds and understanding the change that comes in our hearts and the very core of who we are because of what you've told us in, in your word. And you've called us to, again, uh, to be engaged uh, in study. But help us not to become spiritual gluttons where we simply just take it all in, feel good about ourselves, sense uh, our growth and our maturity, and then realize that we've become Christian couch potatoes. We're not doing anything with what we've learned. And your call to us was to go and make disciples of all nations. So, Lord, we, we pray that today our hearts would be open, that, yes, we'd be studying on your, your, all your word and you'd, you'd speak to us clearly, but you'd also remind us of a command to take action, to do that which you have told us to do, and, and the joy that we do this together. As sisters and brothers in Christ, we stand united in the call that God has laid upon us to tell the world that Christ has come to save sinners such as we. All to your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen.